1: Lucas Cannon is a Curriculum Director at Surge, Centered U.S. Relations Group Engagement, an International Relations and Economics undergraduate student at Tufts University. Lucas, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. How would you uh, identify yourself politically? Like, What are your political leanings?
2: I think they're very much dependent on what the domestic situation is here in the United States. For a long time, I have considered myself a moderate Republican when it comes to our fiscal policy and to our national defense strategy. But that doesn't mean that there are other ideas from the other side of the aisle that we cannot embrace and vice versa for the Democratic side. Um, More than anything else, I think we need to emphasize unity. And that's something that I think, I have tremendous admiration for uh, George Cannon, who was the author of the long telegram and the author of that foreign affairs article where he was just, he said, Mr. X, And he essentially called upon the United States to truly come to the challenge, the greatest challenge we had faced in a generation, fighting the forces of totalitarian communism from the Soviet Union. And he essentially said, the only way the United States can be up to the challenge is if we put aside our domestic differences and work together to to strive to play the long game and essentially hold the line long enough for the internal issues inherent in any communist society, uh, to eventually crack and lead to the destruction of the Soviet Union, as it eventually did collapse. So during the Cold War, there was a bipartisan consensus um, about the threat we face and how to fight it. Today, we're lacking in that. But there are strong signals that we may be going in the right direction in that regard, and that is by Democrats and Republicans working together on China bills in the Congress, by bipartisan support for some of President Biden's actions when it comes to foreign affairs, and for President Trump's actions as well. So I think more than anything else, um, this might sound a little bit cringy, but I'm an American patriot. And I believe even though my partisan leanings into the Republican side are stronger than anything the Democrats have to offer in my opinion, Fundamentally, we have to ask ourselves what is the greatest threat? Where is the greatest threat towards our national security and our national prosperity emanating from? And it's emanating from Beijing. And we have to do something about that. And we have to be united in our response towards this aggressive threat and a revisionist power that is threatening the US led international order. And that is in many ways threatening vital elements of our national security. So, to, to answer your question, I think I am an American patriot, and that's why I've
0: been so outspoken about
2: the China situation and the China challenge
0: more accurately. So, uh, Lucas, was the U.S. right to do a diplomatic boycott in support of the Uyghur minority in China, meaning a diplomatic boycott of the Olympics? Um, I'm assuming this won't change much in terms of China's brutal treatment of the Uyghurs. What do you think the impacts will be?
2: I think it was the right decision. As you have highlighted yourself, it probably will not make that great of a dent on their treatment of ethnic minorities in Xinjiang. But it definitely allows the United States to stand on a principled position internationally. And I think that is essential as the United States is to compare and position itself as a legitimate and right alternative to a Chinese-led world order. And at a time where American legitimacy and our democracy is in continuous threat, it is good for the United States to stand on principle in such foreign issues. So I think it's a, it's the right thing to do. It probably will not do a lot to alleviate the treatment, but it, it will put the United States in a principled position, which is what we need right now.
0: And just to follow up, countries remain heavily dependent on China economically, despite its human rights violations. Is it possible, in your opinion, for any substantial action to be taken against China without harming economic relations? And whatever world leaders be willing to take economic risks, in order to stand up to China's human rights violations?
2: Well, I think this is a very legitimate concern, and I'm sure it is one that a lot of representatives from European, Asian, and Middle Eastern countries ask American officials uh, when we talk about our foreign policy vis-a-vis China. Uh, to be sure, the economic dimension of our competition with China adds a layer of complexity to the great competition, unlike what we experienced during the Cold War, for example. But I would like to highlight a few main points. First, Complete decoupling in all forms of the economy is just not possible. Not for the United States or many of our allies, Japan, South Korea, Australia, the United Kingdom, et cetera. And nor do I really believe it to be wise. Um, The more China's economy is intertwined with ours, the greater restraint China will be forced to embrace when conducting foreign policy. So our economic relations with China are both an asset and a liability, but one which, if we play our cards right, we can use to make our hands stronger. Uh, What we ought to do, however, is decouple in those areas of national security, primarily in areas of defense, cyber, telecom, as well as input resources required for critical national security sectors. And we should push our allies to do the same. And some allies are already doing so, like Germany, uh, the United Kingdom, Australia, Japan, et cetera. Crucially, this is emblematic of the wider China challenge. As easy as it is to try to make all arenas of competition, this is just not possible. We are adversaries, but that does not mean we cannot or should not cooperate in areas where cooperation is mutually beneficial. Uh, The main areas where we must cooperate with China are trade and climate change, but we must also engage in security and economic competition in the Indo-Pacific and wider Eurasian heartland. Uh, That is a complicated approach with numerous dimensions to it, but it is the only way to deal with with the China challenge in a manner that is responsible and realistic. And the second point I'd like to highlight is that we must note that there are recent examples of decoupling with China that have progressed smoothly. Um, the main one I think is Australia. Uh, after Australia called for a more thorough investigation of the origins of COVID-19, China unleashed a dramatic economic onslaught that many believed would devastate Australia's economy. Yet Australia's economy has been remarkably resilient, and its coal, iron, barley industries, the main industries targeted by China, found alternative customers in Japan, South Korea, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia. Particularly the coal sector, Uh, in the coal sector, some of these ventures led to even greater profits. So, So, of course, consumption industries were hit harder. And all the industries I have so far mentioned were not part of the more complex global supply chains that are the hallmarks of most developed economies and of the nations that the U.S. most court in order to get them on our side with regard to China. But the Australian example does suggest decoupling is possible without significant adverse economic consequences. As a testament to this Australian economy's resiliency, it recently joined AUKUS, the alliance that will provide Australia with nuclear submarines, And Australia has continued to block Chinese entry into the Trans-Pacific Partnership. As another example, Lithuania is another democratic state that has faced Chinese economic coercion, yet has successfully withstood the pressure with the help of Taiwan and the EU. And again, Japan is also a crucial American ally that has spearheaded opposition to China, but their economies are very linked. And there are many sectors in the Japanese economy that are very much dependent on the Chinese market and on Chinese supply chains. So decoupling from China is possible, especially if the US steps up and helps cushion short-term disruption, but it will be a difficult dimension over competition and one which I think is very important to highlight.
1: Follow up, um, what about the uh, CTPP, the trade deal that originally was taken down by the, the Trump administration and now has been revitalized by Japan and Canada?
2: I think that is one area where a lot of experts have called upon the Biden administration to be part of uh, this trade deal. Uh, For far too long, I think, um, the United States has not been able to voice its concerns in international organizations. For far too long, that American voice has been lacking, and that's something we need to reverse. And uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or its new uh, acronym, is one vital element of that. Uh, The Obama administration's Hallmark economic pivot to Asia was the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And when President Trump withdrew, that allowed China to create its own rival bloc. So rejoining um, and obviously renegotiating the elements that Mr. Trump rightly considered problematic would be a priority, should be a priority. But engagement with other Indo-Pacific powers is crucial, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership is a vital element in that strategy. So I think there should be very serious discussions in Washington right now about joining in some capacity, and if not joining, then trying to renegotiate elements that progressive and conservative elements within our society are still find problematic about the deal.
0: I want to pivot to the ongoing situation between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, recently national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, uh, had a press conference in which he encouraged and urged American citizens to leave Ukraine as quickly as possible. And he also warned of of a Russian invasion of Ukraine happening uh, within the next week or next couple of weeks. Um, And as you know, Russia has continued to build up its forces and many of its units have reached full combat readiness. Why do you think uh, Vladimir Putin wants to risk such a massive conflict? And what do you think he has to gain from such a war?
2: Well, I'll just start by simply stating that this is an evolving situation. Um, Our information is constantly changing. Um, For example, there are some reports that the Uh, US intelligence believes President Putin made the decision to invade already, while others say that the US intelligence has still not made a verdict, um, whether Mr. Putin will use force. Um, So it is an ongoing situation and one that is evolving at, at the hour. What I do want to highlight is that President Putin has anchored his legitimacy on a highly militarized foreign policy in the midst of domestic economic problems, and the fulcrum of this, of this legitimacy is Mr. Putin's promise to once again return Russia to greatness by making it a great power that rivals the U.S. and Europe. Ukraine is a crucial element of that strategy. Given the long-standing cultural and linguistic ties, I mean, when you look at Russian history, you can, some Russians try to Uh, tie their history to the Kievan Rus in modern-day Ukraine. So there's a huge linguistic and cultural um, ties between Russia and Ukraine that make Ukraine very important for Russian, um, not just Mr. Putin's domestic legitimacy, but Russian identity, which is primarily why this is such an emotional issue for Russia and why I believe President Putin is risking force. So evidently the stakes for Mr. Putin are high. You know, um, President Putin maybe correctly believes that Russia cannot be considered a great power if it does not maintain control over what it sees as its sphere of influence, mainly Ukraine. So if President Putin does use force, he must have judged the benefits, both geopolitical and domestic, to outweigh the economic costs. In this regard, while the recently announced Sino-Russian partnership stops close of an alliance, of, of announcing an alliance between Russia and China, it does say joint action is on the table. The announcement is very explicit about that. So China may very well come to Putin's aid if he opts to invade. And I think that's a crucial factor to take into consideration. Recently, there was an official from Secretary of State Blinken who told the reporter that Russia and China are working to undermine the United States position when the Secretary was visiting in Fiji. Um, I think, though, if China opts to do that, it also carries a great deal of risk for, for them. Because such underwriting, essentially underwriting of Russian aggression is likely to alienate the EU even more and push Europe closer to the US with all the economic and soft power benefits that brings to US efforts to counter China more globally and Russia as well. So alternatively, the nightmare scenario, and I think a lot of American military officials are rightly very worried about such a situation, will be a a coordinated Russian action against Ukraine followed by a Chinese action either in the South China Sea against the Senkaku Islands in Japan or directed against Taiwan. So such a scenario will very much um, overstretch American resources, which is probably why President Biden has ruled out direct military to Ukraine short of weapons transfers. So fundamentally, I think if Putin does choose to use force, it will be an indication that he does not believe reconciling with the United States is possible in the short term, and that he believes that the economic sanctions and costs we would impose on him, be it through banning Russia from SWIFT or the highly aggressive sanctions that the United States has crafted alongside our European partners, probably Putin will see and will think and say, hey, maybe those sanctions might not hurt me so much. China is just going to come to my aid. So it very much depends. But I'm not going to say whether or not Putin will invade, whether or not he has made the decision. We don't know. So it's an evolving situation and it's very dangerous for European stability. And I think President Biden needs to make it clear that such an action by Russia will not stand.
1: Yes, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but assuming Putin does invade and it looks like it's likely that he will, what do we do in that scenario? You know, like you said, we can't do much else besides put the weapons transfers to Ukraine. You know, we can kick Russia out of Swift, although you said that Putin probably doesn't really think that the cost is, you know, not... Great enough for him to not invade, and we also are putting weapons in Lithuania and other NATO partners. And it looks and uh, Sullivan has said that the NATO alliance is strong as ever. If Russia does invade, what can we do then? Like, what is our you know position? What can you know we and our European allies actually do to make sure at least some part of the Ukraine can survive?
2: Beyond you know killing Nord Stream two and kicking Russia out of SWIFT, uh, sanctioning Putin himself, maybe his close group of oligarchs. There's very few things that President Biden can do to really stop a Russian invasion from happening beyond outlining the terms through the form of sanctions and economic policy. This was just, I, I haven't heard any mention of this, but this was something that popped into my head a few days ago, perhaps declaring a no-fly zone to undermine Russia's mil- air power, but that would probably be a game of chicken to see whether the United States is willing to enforce it. And I don't think President Biden might like to get into a quagmire that way. So whether ultimately the decision is on the president, whether or not he chooses to escalate through more direct forceful uses of force in Europe, or whether or not to bide his time to see what China does. Um, Because they did say that they might conduct joint coordinated action. And if China pursues any aggressive action in Asia, um, that's going to be a very very threatening situation. the United States need to be, needs to be ready for all possible contingencies. So ultimately, the choice resides on the president and whether or not he's able to rally the European partners to come together and say, will we let such an aggression on Russia's behalf stand or not? But again, that depends on Europe's cohesion. That depends on President Macron, Chancellor Scholz of Germany, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, the big three in NATO aside from the US. So it's going to be a tricky situation to see what happens, but hopefully for the sake of stability and international legitimacy and for our reputation, um, I think President Biden needs to do everything in his power to prevent war from happening in the first place.
0: So we've been able to have this interesting conversation about foreign policy right here, right now, but admittedly foreign policy, I believe, has less of a presence in people's lives due to people perceiving these concerns to be more abroad and therefore less a part of daily life. How can Americans and more specifically our generation, Generation Z, become involved and more knowledgeable about foreign policy?
2: This is a very important issue to address, I think, um, highly relevant. Um, in a globalized world, I think what happens abroad will always have effects on what happens at home. And I think that's the key that our generation and not just our generation, but all Americans must know. Um, the United States no longer has the luxury of embracing isolationism. The post-war international order that the U.S. created has brought forth significant benefits for both the United States and the world. It has raised billions out of poverty, uh, prevented a global conflagration like World War II, and has created political and economic stability in many areas of Asia, in all of Europe, Latin America, and the Middle East. So these successes are often overshadowed by American failures, be it Iraq, Vietnam, or Afghanistan. It is natural to question the validity and importance of foreign policy, especially for a nation as geographically uh, speaking, as secure as the United States. But ultimately, I think our leaders really have to emphasize the reality of the challenges we face, particularly in the international arena. Um, The PRC, the People's Republic of China, is a highly revisionist power whose rise presents a significant challenge to the U.S.-led international order. But in some ways, it also presents uh, an opportunity to the United States. So we must confront its aggressive actions. I mean, it is aiming to dominate cyberspace, the Indo-Pacific, crucial shipping lanes for American goods and that of our allies. So we must uh, educate the American people about this. We have to, uh, our leaders really have to go outside and use their position and and their public platform as a gateway to foreign policy and say, look, the issues that we are confronting um, may seem abstract, they may seem like they're far away, but they're very, very important. And I think if we can look at the historical precedent, right? Isolationism in the United States contributed to the appeasement of Adolf Hitler and to the withdrawal of the United States from the world at a time it needed active American engagement, particularly in Europe. And that contributed to the start of World War II and as well as the Pacific War. So we must not fall into that trap again. And as I said, raising awareness is crucial outlining the threat we face from abroad is important. The threat that the PRC presents to the United States is just so dramatic and so great that we must put our national interests first and really educate the American people about what's going on. And how to finesse that to ensure that xenophobia doesn't increase is going to be a real challenge for our leaders. But it does seem like Republicans and Democrats are coming together to face the China challenge. And I think that's a good thing. So there's definitely a little bit of a good steps in the right direction, particularly in the Republican Party. Um, There seems to be a rising consensus that China is a threat. So we need to move forward on that and build on that. But it's going to be difficult and it's going to be difficult to finesse that xenophobia that's going to be a real problem and it's going to be a real problem and we have to deal with it one way or another but um we have to make sure it doesn't happen but we'll also have to outline the threat and the threat is real and the threat is great and we also have to outline that it's not just china it's russia as well russia is a highly revisionist power as well and their are increasing convergence is a threat so it is a situation that we're gonna as the american people we're gonna have to ask ourselves And we're going to have to make some tough choices, but eventually, and I think just like Kennan outlined 76 years ago, when we have a foreign threat, we tend to come together. And once that foreign threat is clear and present, and its dangers are as well,
1: then we support the right policies in that direction.
2: But we'll have to see.
1: As we wrap up here, is there anything else you want to say to our viewers, anything you want them to know, any stories you're watching?
2: I think if we want to talk about international issues that we should be watching right now, I think the election in South Korea is definitely important. It might decide whether South Korea is part of the quad, um, the quadrilateral dialogue between the Japan, India, the United States, and Australia, um, as well as the elections in Australia as well. As to conclude, I think fundamentally, we really have to emphasize the benefits that the United States has brought to the world and itself through the creation of the liberal international order that we fostered out in the post-war period. But we also should not delude ourselves. And I think think there are two main schools of thought right now when it comes to the China challenge. One that presents China as a behemoth that is destined to grow and overtake the United States. And another that is less visiferous, less loud, but Still, there that says that China has a lot of issues internally that it will prevent it from um, forcing the United States from its dominant position. I think the most notable from that is Tufts professor Michael Beckley. So, there, I think both sides have good arguments to bring to the table, but ultimately, just like during the Cold War, um, we kind of, during the Cold War, we thought that the communist forces were huge monolith coordinating actions everywhere trying to spread and that led to domino theory and a lot of mistakes in Southeast Asia and extreme fear towards the so which the communist threat and which prevented us from exploiting the frictions between China uh, and the Soviet Union during the early stages of the Cold War. Today, I think we need to try to find a balance between those two views. Those two views have good things to offer on the table, but they also have some problems that I think need to be addressed. A compromise, if you will, between the discourse that says China's rise is inevitable and that China's rise is not inevitable and that China may even collapse. There is a middle ground, and that's the middle ground that our policymakers must embrace because China is not going to collapse anytime soon, but it's also not destined to rise um, the way that some have, have said that it will. In many ways, it depends not on what happens in Beijing, but what happens in Washington. And our leaders have to be up for that challenge. But we shouldn't overhype the China threat, but we shouldn't downplay it either.
1: Lucas, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a really good conversation.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: That concludes this episode of Gen Zers Talk Politics. Be sure to join our Discord server, follow us on Instagram at Gen Zeros Talk Politics, and on Twitter at Gen Zeros Talk Poly with an I, and add or email us to ask your burning questions.
0: Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you next time.